What's good, Ohio? I'm your host, James Hayes, and this is the What's Good, Ohio podcast, where we talk to the activists, organizers, visionaries, and good troublemakers coming together to make our state better for everyone, no exceptions. This is actually our first in-person recording. So I'm sitting here in the same room with Sarah Rodenberg from Palestine, Ohio, my co-host. And what's good, Sarah? Hey, James. It's so good to be here. This is such a lovely space that uh, Kaleidoscope has, and I, I'm i just excited to be in person finally and get to actually have these conversations outside of Zoom. Yes, no, for sure, for sure. Next time, I, I told myself I was going to get haircuts before we did in person, uh, or uh, uh, camera recorded uh podcast but that's why the hat i got the hat on today so we'll uh but yeah but no it's, it's great to see you and it's great to be here in kaleidoscope youth center uh, a building that i've been to a number of times over the years and i've been always really uh inspired by the work that that y'all do here uh here today with mallory golski uh who is a host of the podcast that they they host out of here in this very podcast room speaking queerly which examines pop culture and news politics and other topics that affect the lgbtqia plus youth and young adults thank you so much mallory for letting us uh join you today in your comfy podcast room of course it's so good to have other people but more importantly like i was saying when we first sat down it's really nice to be the guest for once and not have yeah. to do all of my storyboarding and planning in advance i could just kick back I think Cam said, turn my brain off, just relax and let you guys run the show. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, we're really excited to get to know you and and Cam. We're really excited to get to know you a little bit more. uh, make sure our listeners know about what's going on with the, the attack on, on trans youth in Ohio and all the really amazing work that has been going on in response. Um, you know, usually when we, when we talk about what's good Ohio, you know, we're, we're talking about this podcast or like nothing really good about this issue mm. except for the, 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 the fight um, that we've seen organizers wage and the, the power that people have been building. Um, and it's so really excited to hear more about that. But make sure, uh, listeners, that uh, you go check out that podcast, uh, Speaking Queerly, after you get done listening to this and hear more from Mallory. And I know, you, Cam, you did an episode recently on there, so I did not get a chance to listen to it. But, Sarah, I know you did. I did. I did. It was a really great episode. I feel like a lot of what we're covering today is similar to what that was. So if you need more, go back and listen to that. And I think that one's a little bit longer than this is going to be too. So a more thorough look at the details. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah, like James said, we are at uh, Kaleidoscope Youth Center today because we were going to talk about all the recent attacks on trans people in Ohio from our gerrymandered legislature and Governor Mike DeWine. But we can't just focus on the bad, like he said, because in the face of these attacks, Trans youth, trans families, and allies have shown up repeatedly to fight for trans rights, making it loud and clear that trans Ohioans belong in Ohio. So to talk about what's good with trans rights and activism, we are joined by Mallory Ghostly, or Mal, who is Kaleidoscope's civic engagement and advocacy manager, as well as Cam Ogden of Equality Ohio. Welcome, you both. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so do you guys just want to tell us a little bit uh, about your work? We can start with Mal as, uh, you know, we're on your home turf here. Sure, so sure. How you got into it and also just how it's been going. Yeah. So um, my launch into Ohio politics was in 2019. I moved to Columbus in December of that year and I started to work at the state house. I was working for a state senator at the time and as part of um, the Legislative Service Commission fellowship there. And that was kind of a short-lived stint in that office because in the summer of 2020, I took on a role as the deputy comms director for the Senate Democratic Caucus. And that's kind of like, you know, I've always had an interest in politics. I've always had an interest in communications. That's my background. And through that work, I was able to see, you know, kind of firsthand how the Ohio legislature works and it doesn't work at some times too. And while I enjoyed that work, it was deeply frustrating for me to be in the room where these things were happening, but also feeling powerless to, you know, be, to be able to change anything because of course, as like the deputy comms director, I was a spokesperson for the caucus. And so I couldn't just go rogue and say whatever I wanted to. I had to kind of like heed to whatever the senators wanted to say themselves. And so I was delighted when this role opened up with Kaleidoscope Youth Center the civic engagement and advocacy manager position because I would have the opportunity to actually speak up on issues that 
I'm passionate about, but not only that, but can I, I can uplift the voices of LGBTQIA plus youth and young adults who maybe aren't able to be at the state house for testimony because they're in school, or maybe they're not able to testify because they're not out and it wouldn't be safe for them to do so. So yeah, it's, it's fun to be at the state house still, but on the other side of things, I like to be at the podium versus the one, you know, writing the speeches behind the scenes and in doing so, I've gotten to meet some awesome people like Cam, of course. So Amazing. And Cam, how about you? Well, uh, Mallory, it's been wonderful working with you at the State House as well. Unlike Mallory, I didn't go looking for politics. Politics went looking for me. So I started getting involved at the State House um, around the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, when anti-trans legislation first started getting introduced and really gaining traction in the Ohio State Legislature. I immediately sort of jumped in to try and meet with legislators both Republican and Democrat, going to the committee hearings, coordinating with parents and other youth. And what we found in those early days in uh, 2023 was that although there was a large force of people showing up, there wasn't necessarily a space at the State House for people to gather that were queer, LGBT, or who were allies where they knew they were going to be safe at the State House, which is usually, you know, teeming with um, folks who are pretty hostile to us. So that's where the idea for Trans Allies of Ohio really began, because we wanted to create a group that was sort of uh, trans-led, but meant to coordinate allies to help make the State House a more accessible place for LGBT people to advocate. Just like Mallory said, a lot of the time, the kids that are impacted by this sort of legislation aren't actually able to be there because of school because of the travel time, because of a variety of different things. And so holding space for them and for their allies to show up and advocate for them was the way that I really got started. And then uh, as of last year, uh, late last year, I started an internship at Equality Ohio. And well, over the last couple of years, I've gone from being an engineering student to a political and data science student. <laughs> and I found that a lot of the things I enjoyed about engineering, I also enjoy about political science. And there's a really big need in Ohio right now for politically involved young people and specifically young queer people. And that's how I've ended up sitting here at this table. Well, I just want to echo what Cam was saying. And and really talk about the power of the space that Trans Allies of Ohio creates at the State House. Cam is like an awesome, super humble person too. And so I want to make sure that she really gets the shout out. She and her mom get the shout out that they deserve because the State House is not only inaccessible for people who are in school, but it's just a generally very daunting place. You walk in and, and you know, it's beautiful. It's the people's house. Like, I don't think people realize that you can just show up on a Saturday afternoon and like tour the State House. There's always State Highway Patrol officers there to like let you in through security, which I mean, that, that in and of itself is a barrier, right? But again, you want to make sure that People aren't bringing guns in. Ideally, that's not the case. Especially in Ohio. Exactly, exactly. It's like I, I kind of roll my eyes at having to go through security and deal with state highway patrol. And then I'm also like, I would not put it past any of these people to show up with a gun, right? So I, I digress. That's that's a topic for another episode. But very different episode. Yes. <laughs> Is it that different? No, well, and you know? very true. Yeah, so, it's all related. But I, I, I remember where there was no security and you could just yeah. lead a protest right through. And right now, you know, everyone has to have an ID if you want to come in. Right. But, right well, interesting. Yeah. But yeah. But no guns. That's, that's yeah. That's a plus. It's an ideal. But but once you arrive and you get in through security, then to navigate to, you know, is it the Senate building? Is it the State House building? What floor is it? Is this the ground floor? Is this the first floor? And so CAM and the entire Trans Allies of Ohio organization really does a great job of being like, hey, we're meeting in this room. Do you have a buddy? Do you know where you're going? Do you have someone to walk with you to the bathroom? Do you have somebody to show you how to get back to your car? Are you getting back to your car safely? Like they really help make this process just safe and accessible for anyone who is able to participate. Yeah, that's so important, especially when helping the first time activists come to the state house, because it really is just an intimidation factor. You know, all the the architecture, like you're saying, the everyone's in the suit. Um, mm -hmm. I, I worked as a page. Oh, nice. College, and so when I got started as an organizer, the fact that I knew my way around meant that I had a leg up on right on on the opposition. You know, we we, we were sneaking people in different places and we pop out other spots. You know, so, yes, yeah, no, secret it, passageways. That, that, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, so, and um, yeah, but it, and and being able to help people break through that wall of fear is so important. That these folks 
they don't they don't know any better than you that they have so much power over you and it, and it's really hard to voice you know opposition um, and that dynamic uh, but helping people break through is so powerful can lead to so many new leaders which I, which I know y'all, y'all have been doing since 2019 uh, we've seen really a huge uptick in the wave of these bills in 2019 there were only 19 anti-trans bills nationwide in 2024 there are 450 currently under consideration um, it's obviously many, many awful reasons for why we've seen this sort of uh, the surge in this attack. I was wondering if you know y'all could comment on why do you think we're seeing this now? What's the strategy? What's really operating? I don't know who wants to start. You can. If you want well, I mean, to to put it simply, the incentive structures have changed. As of 2019, there wasn't quite a a massive bank of model legislation made by the ADF that any legislator could put forward in their legislature if they wanted to attack anti-trans or they wanted to attack transgender youth. They had to come up with that idea all on their own. Now, we've got organizations such as the Center for Christian Virtue, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the uh, Family Research Council, all of which are financially very closely tied together, essentially writing model legislation such as HB 68, such as HB 8, and other such legislative attacks across the country on transgender youth that a legislator knows they can introduce and get a pat on the back from some well-moneyed interests, as well as a couple of minutes on the five o'clock news. There is an enormous incentive structure for right-wing legislators to introduce bills like this in order to get their five minutes of fame or just to get a pat on the back from people in their, in their uh, political sphere that have a lot of influence. And as a result, we see legislators clamoring over each other to introduce, again, over 450 uh, anti-trans or anti-LGBT pieces of legislation nationally. One of the things I'd like to highlight here is 450, yes, but in many cases, what's really indicative of how much of this is motivated by attention and by uh power lust is the fact that in a couple of states, Missouri, such as uh, is a great example, some legislators, right-wing legislators, introduced the same bill down to the word. Mm-hmm. Oh my. And they both got sponsor hearings on it and they both got to brag that they had introduced the bill mm-hmm. because it was all about getting that attention, yeah. being known as being hard on these kids who really don't want to do anything other than just be themselves. And that, that incentive structure, that completely out-of-whack way that politics is being run at the state level right now in a lot of these legislatures is really to blame, I feel like, for this huge, huge increase in anti-LGBT sentiment. Absolutely. I, I certainly couldn't phrase it any better than Cam just did. But I will also say that, you know, here in Ohio, we've had a couple great wins over the last year, you know, around issue one, of course, you know, first issue one being voted down and then issue one uh, being passed in um in November of 2023. And so I think for a long time, um, abortion was a winning issue for certain members of the legislature and attacks on reproductive freedoms and bodily autonomy. That was a winning issue as it related to abortion. And so when, when legislators start to realize like, oh, hey, the vast majority of Ohioans are actually going to vote to protect people's right to abortion, their right to reproductive freedom. They needed to find somebody else to pick on too. You know, obviously these things were happening before issue one, issue one and issue one um, came to be. But also I think the passage of that in November really solidified their need to double down on trans attacks because that's exactly what we saw. They came back and at the end of the year, again, after a year where they passed historically low numbers of legislation, um, they came back and the first thing they cared to do was was attack trans rights, really just as a double down and be like, haha, look, we, we have this power over you, right? So that, that's just another take that I have, too, that kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, HB 68 started moving in the legislature less than a week after issue one passed. And in fact, they came back early from their holiday break just to do that in, in January, too. So um, it wasn't like, a, OK, we'll wait and see or we'll hang on until until lame duck. They said, nope, we're going to drag everyone back down to Columbus to, to make this happen. So. And in the last episode of Speaking Queerly, you were talking, Cam, I believe it was you, about how our uh, the current administration in our state house has demonstrated that it does not think that Ohioans can make their own medical decisions. They thought that when we were trying to solidify or codify abortion into our constitution, um, and then when they lost that one, they moved on, which is kind of what you were just saying. Can we 
talk about the specific bills that have been brought in Ohio, um, just from, you know, drag bans, bathroom bills, sports. Like, there's so many different types of legislation that is used to oppress and marginalize trans folks. But could you talk about the ones that have been specifically brought in Ohio? Yeah, I mean, I can't be sure that I've uh, that I'll be able to list all of them off the top of my head. I wish this was an open book test. <laughs> but, um, off the top of my head, there's HB 183, which is a bathroom ban for uh, transgender students all the way up to K through 12, and, and also college. It also uh, is a bathroom ban for anyone on the premises of any educational institution. So, and and the way it's written currently, I mean, this could impact. Places where field trips are held, too. So, like, if a group of students went to COSI, um, the way that it's written now, because those students are on that um, property, it could impact the bathrooms there or at, like, a sporting facility or wherever. Yeah, most notably, I think the example I've given a lot of people while explaining it is it would mean that OSU Stadium would not be able mm -hmm. to have uh, bathrooms that are inclusive to transgender people. Even if you're not a student, like, because you're there on a college campus at that facility, you have to use the bathroom that aligns with the sex you were assigned at birth. Yes, correct. So the, the the language of the legislation is written in order to create the broadest possible way of banning transgender people from using restrooms while still being able to hide behind, you know, the divisive rhetoric they use around painting trans people as a danger to children and the necessity of legislation like this for the protection of children, which of course we know is nonsense because transgender and um, gender nonconforming youth are at higher risk under policies such as this of bullying, harassment, intimidation, sexual assault. Then there's HB 245, which is uh, the drag ban, which has received a sponsor hearing and would, as it's currently written, um, outlaw all sorts of uh, wonderful things like Shakespeare in the Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, and yes, drag shows. It categorizes them as obscene or uh, cabaret, adult cabaret performances, and puts them essentially on the same regulation and enforcement criteria of a strip club, which is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> well, and, and it specifically is targeting them outside of adult-only spaces. So, like, drag performances technically could still happen in a bar, um, somebody where somebody would have to be somewhere where somebody would have to be carded to get in. But like a lot of these, like drag story time hours or like, like we know pride is in an open space and like that's you don't have to be carded to come into pride right so those are spaces where these drag performances could be banned and another level of this is that it's specifically targeting people who are performing as a gender that doesn't align with the sex they were assigned at birth so like again if um, a young person is in a school play and you know playing a male role if they were if they're female or vice versa like that could be a violation of this policy. And we saw exactly that happen in, I believe, Oklahoma. Yeah. There was a, a um, transgender boy who was performing in a, a male role in a school play, and the school board tried to shut them down because they had a uh, some sort of regulation on that. There was there was some sort of, uh, in their eyes, a prohibition on that sort of divisive performance. Right. And uh, in the name of protecting children, they needed to make sure that school play got shut down. When we know anybody who has watched a school play ever knows that like there's never a proportional amount of like male female roles, whatever. Like everyone, you know, takes turns playing different roles depending on the show, and this is not a new thing. And especially you know having a trans person play a role like that's not divisive everyone's in costume it's for these you know school play mm -hmm. too like the stakes are that it's a school play right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah you always have to remind people about how um uh, you know, we talk about anti-trans legislation, mm -hmm. but really this legislation goes so much further. And in fact, some of the most obvious ways that the legislation runs afoul of basic societal decency is in mm -hmm. how it affects everyone. Not sure. to take away from the fact that it's obviously targeting the very vulnerable trans community, right. but it affects everyone because trans people are, you know, a part of the world. And right. so if you attack them, you're attacking everyone. You know, and beyond that, I would like to come to uh, one of the more concerning pieces of legislation because of both the status that it has in the legislature and the very, very real ramifications of it, um, which is HB 8. What is it? Put Students in Danger Act, yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, you, you may hear it referred to by proponents as the Parents' Bill of Rights, you know, but it's really a bill that would harm students. Yes. So the uh, legislation HB 8 is a forced outing bill. Forced outing means that 
that um, if a teacher were to find out that a student was transgender or was um, even just asking their parent or their their peers to use different pronouns or I don't know using eyeliner when they the teacher thought that, that wasn't something that their assigned sex at birth should be doing. The teacher would then be obligated to report that behavior back to the parents. And importantly here, even when asked to amend this, the Republican legislators in the House remain stalwart that even in cases where the child would be abused, the parents should still be told. Even in cases where the child is believed to be in danger if that information is passed on, the teacher is still obligated to pass that information on to the parents. And again, this is just another one of those encroachments into sort of really dangerous sort of policies for all kids, mm -hmm. because all kids, you know, do stuff like that, that their parents, some parents might actually react really dangerously to. Because, I, you know, some people have grown up in homes like that and they've experienced that sort of thing. And it's an extremely scary prospect. HB8 goes even further, though, because not only does it regulate the behavior that the kids are allowed to display at school, because remember, this isn't just whether or not the teacher has been told that a kid is gender nonconforming or transgender. It's if the teacher suspects or sees them behaving in a way that makes them believe that way. So it's not just regulating the behavior. Yeah, it's not just uh, regulating the behavior that students can have with teachers. It's also be regulating the behavior they can even have with their peers without being uh, reported back on to their parents who, are, again, um, could be abusing them. They also go even further with this legislation and ban the use or teaching of sexuality concepts. Now, when HB8 was moving through the Ohio House, and this is a little bit convoluted because legislature can tend to be convoluted, but when HB8 was first introduced, it was talking about sexually explicit material. But in committee, they amended it to be about sexuality concepts. And they refused to give a clear definition of what sexuality concepts were. That's but, what I was going to ask. I was like, what, what does that mean? So they, they said I don't, I don't what remember being taught that in school. So I'm like, what, is, what, is, what, is, what right. are they trying to stop? Like, but they specifically <laughs> talked about gender identity as being one of those sexuality concepts. So... You know, obviously also sexuality concepts could be include, you know, the fact that some families have two moms or two dads, mm -hmm. the existence of gay or transgender people throughout history, all of those things are prohibited under HBA from being taught in schools. So it is a full don't say gay and forced outing mm -hmm. legislation in its current form. And when asked to amend the legislation to clarify that it wasn't targeting LGBT people, the uh, Ohio House refused to do so. The Republicans in the Ohio House refused to do so. So, yeah. And so that, sure the educators are just uh, are, 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 are loving that, you know, because. Well, yeah. Right. Because, you know, even if this legislation, I mean, right now, House Bill 8 is not law. Right. It's still moving through the Senate. Um, but I'm sure there are teachers out there who have heard about it and have heard these discussions and they're just afraid of bringing it up generally. And, you know, no teacher is teaching anything inappropriate to their students. No teacher is out there discussing the nuances of queer sex. You know what I mean? But um, especially here in Ohio and we don't have comprehensive sex education. Right. You know, but if, sex education. exactly. But if a teacher who's queer isn't allowed to bring up that they have a wife at home, you know what I mean? It's like. And a straight teacher can be proposed correct. to in their classroom. Right. <laughs> like, I just think about like, you know, everyone, everyone who's queer or trans can think of that one person who that first queer trans adult that they interacted with, who when you saw them, you were like, oh, I see myself in you. And you kind of that flashbulb moment and they didn't have to do anything profound. They just had to exist. And you had to know that they existed with that identity. And the fact that this bill would rob students of that opportunity, you know, is just egregious by all means. Yeah. And, you know, as we talk about these different pieces of legislation, that's a pretty that those three bills are the main three. There are a couple others that, um, you know, we're keeping an eye on. But those are the main three that are at, in our eyes the highest risk. I also wanted to say to anyone listening, you might think that what we're talking about is a little bit hyperbolic or a little bit histrionic in terms of, you know, making a lot of assumptions about what the impact of this legislation could be because it hasn't passed in Ohio, right? All three of the pieces of legislation that we just talked about, 183, 245, and um, HB8, None of them have passed yet, but this has been going on for a couple of years, and we've actually seen circumstances exactly like the ones that the four of us have described 
take place in other states where these things have passed. Mm -hmm. So we do know the impact of this legislation now, and it is not hyperbole to imagine that a trans youth might be outed to their abusive parents and be in a dangerous situation. You know, it's not hyperbole to say that someone might get, you know, kicked out of their theater group because they're transgender and that that violates, you know, a certain regulation or statute and so on and so forth. These things are happening across the United States because of this anti-LGBT push. Mm -hmm. And trans kids still face abuse from their parents without any laws that mandate. (laughs) Aren't teachers mandated mandated reporters on the Yeah, yeah, like... Oh, it, and, it's like, come back tomorrow and tell me right. how, I, how it went. Like, I then I can call another person. Yeah. Right. Another thing with that, you know, you bring up a good point, which maybe will help segue us into House Bill 68, which I know we need to talk about too. As part of the floor discussion on the Senate when they were overriding that veto, one of the senators said something along the lines of like, oh, we need to tell parents. Sometimes we as the legislature need to tell parents what to do. And my first thought was, gosh, okay, so I'm going to have you remember that sentence you just said when the Parents' Bill of Rights passes, when you're like, yeah, all parents should have the right to say what their kids can and can't do or can and can't learn in school. Except if you're a parent who believes that their trans kid should be affirmed, in which case we need to tell you what to do, right? So it, it really just goes to show, like, which which parents are we supporting? Which rights are we supporting? And, and what at what points are we supporting students? And at what point are we not? Really, it just comes down to the authority of adults in one way or another over young people and their bodies. Yeah, and this, this small minority of old white men, for the most part, that are... Uh, rabidly racist and conservative and, you know, want to use transphobia to really target people. I think something you said earlier about how there was this pivot coming out of issue one and saying, okay, well, this is going to be our our main sort of attack uh, angle. And I think part of it, you know, for a long time, even on the, the then sort of the liberal world, like Democrats were hesitant to embrace abortion. You know? Sure, yeah. Uh, Tim Ryan wouldn't say the word abortion for, I think, the duration of his campaign. Right. And it really wasn't until in the ballot passed that I think that sort of battle was settled, that this is, you know, an issue that can't be touched anymore. And I, th- I imagine there'll be a similar trajectory here where, you know, we're going to have to see more and more folks really coming to bat and showing up and saying, no, hands off of, uh, hands off our young people, hands off of trans kids, hands off our families. We, you know, um, get our governments out of because the real impact is people are going to leave the state, you know, and I thought about that a lot. Um, as House Bill 68 was passing, and we want to talk about that a little bit because that's the most recent, most prominent anti-trans legislation that passed recently. And really want to focus in on sort of like the organizing that y'all did, you know, and we'll really paint the picture for our listeners about what what that felt like, what that looked like, uh, as, as you, there were hundreds of opponent testimonies submitted and people packing out the state house, hearing after hearing. So it's really t- kind of taking people into that whole process. And obviously it culminated in a, a, a kind of like a, a bit of a victory at the end, but then uh, ultimately because of how gerrymandered you know our state is and the supermajority. Uh, so we, we can kind of get into all that in a little bit, but just kind of take us through that. Like, what was your experience like at these hearings as you continued to show up, probably more often than you wanted to? Um, well, I kind of alluded to this at the beginning. If for as awful as you know, an experience can be going to the state house, right? Because oftentimes when you're going there, you're going there to defend your rights, somebody else's rights. Like it's never a, a good reason here in Ohio, typically, that you're going to the state house. The silver lining for all of that is just the fact that we were able to meet and connect with so many other people statewide. And some of these people are families and parents of, of trans and LGBTQ youth. Um, some of them are trans people themselves, young, old, every age in between. You have people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different political backgrounds. I think that was one of the things that was most striking to me is the number of people who stood up at the podium and said, I am a Republican. I, you know, organized for President Trump. You know what I mean? It's like, I am as conservative as they get. And I think this is crazy. And so that I thought was just so moving to hear. But, you know, of course, more so than that is the the testimony from trans people and their families who got up there and just 
completely bared their soul for the legislature. They, they went up there and they said the most vulnerable things that they could share and doing so knowing that everything was going in one ear and out the other or would openly subject them to, to more hostile behavior or to um, ridicule or any sort of mistreatment from these individuals who don't agree that trans young person's identity should be affirmed. And yet they continued to show up even though it was hard, even though it was horrifically taxing on their mental health, even though they had to drive for hours to get here, even though they were missing school or work, people showed up again and again and again. And that I just thought was so just moving, absolutely moving. You know, I, I couldn't summarize what we went through better than that. I will add a little bit of context in terms of like the national perspective of this. You know, I, I as part of what I've done over the last couple of years, I've built a lot of connections to a lot of different journalists and other activists around the country. And I was continually told by people as we continue to turn out for testimony, for opposition, all of this stuff, that Ohio was showing exactly how opposition to anti-trans politics should go. Mm -hmm. I was speaking to a journalist for um, a national publication that essentially told me, if this can't stop, a bill like this, then nothing ever stood a chance. Oh, for sure. Because it was Republicans, it was Democrats, it was trans people, it was detransitioners. It was an enormous coalition of people who all showed up to oppose HB 68, and the legislature said, I don't really care. That, right. And fundamentally, um, that calculus wasn't going to shift as a result of how much opposition there was, because again, the incentive structure was just so tilted in their, in favor of them just voting to protect themselves in their primaries. And in contrast too, I think I counted just over 600 individual pieces of testimony that had been submitted for both House Bill 68 in the House and in the Senate um, for those committee hearings. Now, some of those are like the same person submitting testimony for both the House and the Senate, but over 600 individual pieces of testimony. And yet the only, and the vast majority of those are Ohioans or people who have some connection to Ohio. In contrast, the proponents, there were only about a handful of people who came to speak and the vast majority of them were coming from outside of the state. And these are people who are being, as Cam has alluded to, you know, all these other states that are introducing similar pieces of legislation. These people are following that legislation around the country. They're doing their little roadshow to all of these different states to testify. And yet, you know, we're being told that, oh, you know, out of state, you know, interest groups are, out of state special interest groups are the ones transing our kids or whatever. It's like, no, we're just Ohioans who are trying to live our lives. And, and it's the out of state folks who are trying to, to take that away. And it's also worth noting the reason that they need to bring people from out of state is because there aren't enough people where there's one for each state. They Correct. couldn't find someone to fit that level that right. part of their narrative that they needed. They couldn't find people who wanted to speak in favor of this. Now they're like, oh, well, you know, there are people who wanted to, but they were too afraid. It's like, okay, give me a break. There are young people. There are children going up to these podiums, skipping school, doing the bravest thing they can, which is talking about themselves, their identities, their, you know, the fear for being able to continue yeah. to live in the state. If they're not too afraid, like, that's just an excuse. There's nobody who wants to speak in favor of this legislation. Yeah, and I know we've, we've harped on this topic uh, quite a bit already, but I just want to add one last thing, which is, yes, it took an enormous amount of courage for the youth and the families who went and spoke publicly and in the podium, you know, at the podium, to the committee as a whole. But I also, as someone who's been involved internally in coordinating meetings one-on-one -on -one between senators, Republican and Democrat, with families and trans youth who will be impacted by HB 68. And I've seen firsthand how vulnerable they've been in these one-on-one -on -one personal interactions mm -hmm. with senators. And to have, you know, these Republican senators who really open their office up to speak to these youth and hear what they were afraid of and what was going on, and to look at them and say, yeah, I don't want to hurt you. And then a couple of weeks later, vote to kick them out of the state mm -hmm. is one of the most disgusting things I think I've ever seen in politics. Yeah. It, I mean, a lot of the uh, interactions we had with like the chair of the committee in the Senate that this bill was in, she seemed so forgiving and just understanding when people were testifying for like almost eight hours in December on this against this bill. And yet to turn around and just viciously attack them on the Senate floor, just doubling down um, in January when they were voting to override the bill, just the way she just, you know, went from being like, oh, yes, we're we're looking at it from both sides, which I would say from her is just a, a generous like, oh, OK, like she's trying. Right. But, you know, 
know, we know. And then for her to be like, nope, nope, this is all a hoax. You know, trans uh, identities don't exist. And, you know, doubling down, it really, it's it's a very vulnerable thing. Yeah, and I mean, you're, you're not going to say her name, but I will. Senator Christina Sure, Roker. yeah, go for it. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't sure how, uh, how blatant we wanted to be here. I'll be blatant. Senator Christina Rogner had better be leaning all the way into that anti-trans rhetoric because she's got nothing else to stand on. Mm -hmm. Her district went 27 points for issue one. That is to say, by a, ma by a margin of 27 percentage points, her district voted to codify abortion rights in the Constitution of Ohio. Well, guess what? She was one of the primary sponsors for the heartbeat bill. Mm -hmm. She's toast if she can't distract people with anti-trans rhetoric. So it didn't matter whether or not Anyone could reach her heart with, you know, their personal stories of how important, you know, they were to Ohio and how important it was that they had been able to access gender affirming care. It didn't matter because at the end of the day, she needed to win a primary. Right. And she and needed to um, stay in office. Now, of course, she's managed to stay in office for long because she's a senator. But right. I digress. Yeah. Cam, Cam kind of brought this up earlier when she said, like, we did all we could. You know what I mean? And I just want to echo that because... It, it may feel like to some people, like, why couldn't, you know, run faster? Why couldn't we have done just a little bit more? And it's like, no, literally, we could not have done anything more than what we did. We we brought in hundreds of people. We had, you know, so, people protesting. We had people showing up statewide. We were having these conversations with legislators. We were trying to, you know, every sort of logos, ethos, pathos. We tried all the tactics, right? And, and still, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is people want to win their primaries. And there's nothing that we as individuals can do to change that, except Except fixed gerrymandering. That's, that, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Yep. Just, yeah, it's all. There's such a manifestation of that that seizure of power, and uh, like it's really it's a small minority, and they've broken our democracy. I mean, mm -hmm. essentially, like people voted on Matt. We talked our last episode. We talked about this, the the redistricting initiative, and its historic importance. But I think. Every episode we talk about this whole season, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep coming back to that because mm -hmm. as long as our maps are so gerrymandered, as long as power is so concentrated into the hands of really, really just I don't know, evil people essentially, mm -hmm. you know, it, uh, they will stoop to any low mm -hmm. to uh, to maintain their power. We're gonna keep seeing more and more attacks, and I think we're seeing you know I think because of the reducing initiative, we're also gonna see this year probably. Lots of uh, vicious uh, attacks because they know that the window's closing, and and if we're if we're successful this November, we'll I think we'll be able to start to see a uh, return of some sanity. I won't be you know it won't solve all problems by any means, but mm -hmm. so I, I do worry about this year and the, the number of things that might. Mm -hmm. uh, be pushed uh, through and this, as, as the window begins to shut mm -hmm. to shut on them. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so going over a brief history of what has happened with HB 68, which again is the gender affirming care ban for all Ohioans under the age of 18. Uh, so it passed the House and Senate, Governor DeWine then vetoed the bill, and then the House and Senate overrode the governor's veto. After DeWine initially vetoed HB 68, he proposed administrative rules that would restrict how, where, and when transgender adults are allowed to access health care. This went beyond the attacks of trans youth that were in HB 68. On February 8th, so about a week ago, DeWine released the revised rules, which fully removed adult care from the restrictions, as well as the requirement for a medical ethicist, which there are not even enough to do anything <laughs> if they wanted to. Well, these rules are still very harmful for Ohio kids, and we still have a long way to go. These changes were a direct result of everyone submitting public comments on these administrative rules. Big kudos and thank you to everyone who spoke up about the harmful effects of these rules. This shows that the voices of Ohio's voters do matter, despite how gerrymandered and extremist our legislature has become, and that when we take collective action and speak up, we can still make meaningful change. How can we continue to engage and mobilize Ohioans on this issue? Right. Well, at the time of this recording, unfortunately, this episode is going to come out after this deadline, but that's okay. I'm sure there will still be things that we can do at that point. At the time of this recording, there's still opportunity for people to submit written comments on the OMAS rules, so the rules um, that would impact the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services here in Ohio. So, of course, we're still pushing that information out, encouraging people to submit comments, because like you said, that did have a real impact on, on this 
this um, this additional draft that was released last week. From that, you know, I, I have my How a Bill Becomes a Law t-shirt on, and that was worn very intentionally, right? Because in elementary school, we all watched, or many of us watched, I'm sure not everybody watched um, Schoolhouse Rock, but many of us, us are familiar with the How a Bill Becomes a Law song. And there's a catchy jingle, and we all know how that works and all that. I'm just a bill. Yeah, I'm only a bill. <laughs> and now that that's stuck in everyone's heads, my challenge to you all is, is for somebody who is really musically gifted out there to come up with a song to explain how an administrative rule gets enacted in Ohio. Because I am sure, like many of you, I have been Googling vigorously. I have been reading every document um, on, on how this, po this process takes place because the next step is that it goes to uh, JCAR, which is the Joint Committee on Agency Rule Review. There we go. There's an acronym for everything. Yeah. And this is a cohort of legislators who are appointed to be part of this committee, consisting of both Democrats and Republicans from the House and the Senate. And they're tasked with reviewing these rules before they get finally enacted. So again, this comes after the public comment period. All this to say, there will be an opportunity for people to come and testify in front of JCAR to, to give a final opinion on the rules and how they, were, they would impact people. So we don't know yet when that will be. By the time of this recording, we might know, we might not know. But of course, we know that uh, organizations like Equality Ohio, Trans Ohio, Trans Allies of Ohio, Kaleidoscope Youth Center, ACLU, the list goes on. Um, these groups are going to be sharing that information, and that would be a really great way for people to continue to get involved involved specifically around the gender affirming care um, rules. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in summary, uh, a song about the administrative rulemaking process would be analogous to the Flight of the Bumblebee <laughs> or maybe the Jaws theme song. Right, 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 right. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, seriously, if somebody wants to do that, like rock on. I will I will promote that. I've thought if I had more time to just like devote my life to creativity, that would be what I'd be doing, yeah. but alas. Yeah, you know, it, it was really, really heartening to see the adult care restrictions fully removed from these administrative rules. I was personally looking at how I could get my care out of state if the worst should happen because the rules were that restrictive that they would eliminate care for broad swaths of the LGBT or the, uh, the trans community. Not just broad swaths, I mean a, a huge percentage. Uh, very few people would still be able to get care in Ohio under the regulations and those regulations were removed for adults and uh, minors were uh, more explicitly grandfathered in. So the restrictive elements of the regulations or the administrative rules were removed. However, as someone who's been very, very closely watching this process and has been involved in writing comments for the process, I want to flag that the data collection is still very, very, very concerning. I was going to bring that up, but I didn't know if we wanted to go full policy wonk data collection. <laughs> I won't go full policy wonk because I don't want to bore you guys to sleep. But essentially, the idea that transgender people need to be tracked as though they are carrying a communicable illness, you know, the, 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 the analogy that I've received from spokespeople and from the governor himself, not I've received, but that the governor's used is that, well, we track COVID cases, right? Or like food poisoning. Or food poisoning. Which like, yeah, I want to know if I'm going to get food poisoning from romaine lettuce, Do right? You understand the difference between an infection and not? Right. Exactly. This is, this is the core issue, is that when you are treating people as though they are communicable illness that needs to be tracked, that is a significant issue. Now, I could go into all of the different procedural and policy wonk stuff, but I will not. Uh, One place that you can find a lot about that is on Policy Matters website. Um, Catherine Poe, our health and budget researcher, wrote our public comments, all of our public comments, and they did a very in-depth conversation or blog about the data collection and all of the implications of that. Yes, absolutely. Serious shout out to Catherine Poe for writing such an amazing summary and um, in-depth, you know, comment on the specific issues with that data collection. So, point we're winding this conversation down has been really, really uh, enlightening, and um, you know, it's been good to hear from both of you. I, and 
we've talked a lot about really, really difficult things. So I just kind of wanted to take a moment and uh, ask, like, what you've been doing to kind of keep the fight going, you know, to stay alive. For me, that looks mostly like playing with my kid getting jumped uh, <laughs> by Spider-Man. But Cam, I, I heard that you, you've been taking up guitar recently. Um, What's that process been like? How is that helping you? Well, my guitar playing isn't getting better. <laughs> my, my anxiety is. And really the reason I talked about that in the last podcast is because sometimes when, and I'm speaking to youth here specifically, sometimes when the state government comes in and asserts control over your body, that can be a really, really violating and scary experience. That's an experience that lots of marginalized communities understand when legislators who don't know you start, and that you don't know, start making decisions for your life. Mm -hmm. The reason that I like to talk about guitar and I like to talk about other avenues of self-expression is because that's not something that they can take away from you. And although it is violating and difficult and traumatic to deal with these decisions being made for you, they can't actually stop you from being able to improve yourself and take steps to become the person that you want to become. So, you know, I was dealing with a lot of really, really awful anxiety because I had a stalker after uh, advocating in the state house. I had to move, actually. And I was dealing with a lot of anxiety. I was cooped up. I wasn't in a good place mentally. And um, I decided that I was going to do something that I couldn't be stopped from doing by this person who was scaring me. So I started playing guitar whenever I was anxious. And I'm going to be honest, my progress has been very slow. <laughs> that's not because of the state government, that's because of me. <laughs> well, learning guitar is hard. It seems yeah. like it'd be easy, but it's, don't fault yourself. It is a tough thing. But, you know, every step forward that I take on this, it has been a step that I've, you know, taken as a result of my determination to um, improve myself. And that is something that you can't really put into words. It sounds really, really cheesy until you do it yourself, mm -hmm. you know, until you take a task and you just kind of break it down and you start working on it. For me, that's a really soothing way to sort of take care of myself and feel like there's something that can't be taken away from me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I resonate with that. Yeah, I feel like cooking is like that for me. Yeah, I, I think all self-care is revolutionary because if we do that maintenance and can do that for ourselves, think of how we can show up for other people. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. As long as we connect that loop because... I don't think I worry about the all self care revolutionary stuff is, you know, we, we have to get back to the work eventually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But no, but no, that's but, actually true. Yeah, it helps you so much. Yeah. I, I just think about like, and we kind of talked about this in the last podcast episode too, of like, imagine all that we could be doing if we weren't spending all of our time on the defense, trying to fight back against this legislation. Imagine the progress that we can make, like the time, the energy, the like emotional availability that is spent fighting this legislation. Imagine, Cam, I mean, you might've taken up guitar still. You could be, you know, I could be playing bar chords right now. Right, exactly, <laughs> right, right, right. Like we could be seeing you at an open mic night or something. I guess oh, we still can. Dear right? God, no. I barely get to the podium at the state house. Let's, let's, not, let's not put me there just because I want to. Okay, so what <laughs> I'm hearing is that Cam is going to write her next testimony in the form of a written jingle, like a, a fun yeah. little song and dance. And right. also the how it yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I write a song about politics. It'll be the explicit version. Yeah, yeah. I played right. the saxophone if Ooh, you need a, a feature. I, I could play the tambourine. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have a drum set. I'm happy. Nice. Okay. 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 So we're a band. Like, I don't think they'll let you in the state house with that. No, no, mm -hmm. probably not these days. Back in the damn town, they had no. You can no get security. anything in there. Yeah. Bring anything in that joint. Wow. Back into there, Senate Bill Five. Uh, yeah. There, mm -hmm. that, that whole, that's kind of when I cut my teeth, like in like 2011, yeah. and. Um, yeah, we just stack and stay house. As you say that, I, I was in Wisconsin at that time, and we also had, like, full drum kits and such protesting uh, the collective bargaining uh, takedown that was happening then. Yeah, I guess that's true. You probably can't go in with a set of marching quads anymore, can you? <laughs> Never know until you try. You fit them through the scanner. <laughs> yeah, so. Assemble it in the bathroom and then come out. Just yeah. Right, right. You walk in with a trench coat that's sticking up. So <laughs> well, that was a great conversation. Yes. Uh, can we talk about how folks can support your work and plug in to fight for trans rights? 
Well, right off the bat, I'd like to draw people's attention to the Trans-Ohio Emergency Fund and the Southern Trans Youth Emergency Project. You know, we just talked about how all of this really scary legislation is threatening, you know, it's an existential threat to transgender youth and transgender adults in the state of Ohio. Um, the Trans-Ohio Emergency Fund is a agile sort of general emergency fund that can help trans adults and trans youth and their families that are in need for uh, smaller or larger things, such as moving costs, um, difficulties with attaining medication um, out of state because their medication is no longer available in state, that sort of thing. The Southern Trans Youth Emergency Project is a little bit more of a systematized grant system where families can apply for a $500 grant that can help them with relocation. And then a month later, or maybe 90 days later, they will be eligible to receive another $500 if the first $500 wasn't uh, enough to meet their needs. So um, either of those two causes are a fantastic cause to donate to if you have some pocket change and are interested in doing something that helps transgender youth and adults in Ohio. There's also a whole lot to be done in terms of the legislation that we talked about that hasn't passed. And I'll, you know, pass it over to Mal to talk yeah. about how to stay in tuned. Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing, and I was reflecting on this as Cam was talking, that it, it takes a little something from everybody to fight this fight and to like be involved and engaged. For instance, I do not have the income to donate large sums of money to funds like this. You know, I work for a nonprofit and that's just the reality of life. You know, there may be somebody out there who spends all their day plugging away at a computer in a cubicle for a big corporation. And that is awesome. Good for you. You probably live in a nicer house than I do. And you have some spare change laying around in your pocket, I bet. Um, not to make assumptions, right? But those are the folks who, yes, we're looking to you to, you know, open up your wallets and donate to things like, like Kim mentioned and, you know, places like, uh, Kaleidoscope Youth Center. We have, um, all sorts of resources to support the queer and trans youth who this legislation would directly impact. And you can find that at kycohio.org slash donate. There are people who can, they have the capacity. Maybe their jobs are a little bit more flexible and they have the capacity to show up and pack the state house for these hearings. You know, the person sitting at their cubicle might not be able to do that. And that's fine too. Everybody can play a role in this fight. And so I think the hardest thing is when somebody's just sitting in, on social media and scrolling through and not taking action. When you see that graphic with a call for testimony, we see that graphic with a call for written comment. Maybe you might not have the capacity to do that in that moment, but share it with a friend who you know who is able to do that. Um, share it with somebody who you think might be interested in getting involved, but maybe hasn't taken that first step yet. Because what we want to avoid is that bystander effect where it's like, oh, somebody else is going to do it and I don't have to worry about it because other people, you know, we have those 600 people who are showing up and submitting testimony. That's okay. I don't have to do it. Well, if every single person thought to themselves, well, I don't have to do it because somebody else is, we wouldn't have that 600 pieces of testimony. Um, th these steps don't take a lot of time. It doesn't take you long to write a paragraph or two. Um, but the, the time that you do spend can have a real, like literal life or death, death impact on a young person, on many young people here in Ohio. Um, so just know that the actions that you take, they have meaning, they have power. And I encourage everyone to do something within their capacity. Um, but stay, stay connected on social media to all the organizations we've mentioned because we're the ones sharing the information as it happens. Just like navigating the state house is difficult, sometimes navigating the state legislature's webpage is difficult. Um, so let us do that for you. Um, and, you know, I know the folks at Equality Ohio do an awesome job of disseminating that information and breaking it down in a way that folks can digest. Um, so follow us all on social media and, and let us, you know, help guide you when, when there's a time to take action. And we will be sure to include all of those links in our show notes. As always, visit whatsgoodohio.com for those show notes and links and subscribe to What's Good Ohio wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time to keep talking about what's good here in Ohio.